You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to the 435th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all will recall, we used the last show to look at the Confederate retreat from Chattanooga and the successful defensive stand by the Rebel Rear Guard, commanded by Patrick Claiborne, at Ringgold Gap on November 27, 1863. Claiborne's trouncing of Hooker's Federals at Ringgold Gap marked the end of the Chattanooga campaign. At Tunnel Hill at the northern end of Missionary Ridge and at Ringgold Gap on the retreat, the Irish-born rebel general's performance and that of his division had been the only bright spot for the Army of Tennessee. In Wiley Sword's book, Mountains Touched with Fire, he says that Chattanooga was, quote, a crucial and remarkable turning point in the war, a milestone on the path of doom for the Confederacy. Throughout the South, people had expected that Braxton Bragg would capitalize on his victory at Chickamauga by reoccupying Chattanooga, but now that hope had been dashed. In Richmond, War Department clerk John B. Jones confided to his diary that Bragg's defeat and the loss of the great strategic prize of Chattanooga represented a, quote, incalculable disaster. Chattanooga was the mountain gateway to northwest Georgia. The Confederate defeat at Chattanooga meant the loss of Tennessee and threatened the loss of Atlanta. Had Ulysses S. Grant's attempt to end the deadlock at Chattanooga failed, the onset of winter would have postponed any further federal effort to break out until the following spring. Instead, the city became a giant storehouse for the Yankees, where supplies stockpiled during the winter months made possible Sherman's spring 1864 offensive against the interior of Georgia. The victory at Chattanooga also cemented Ulysses S. Grant's status as the premier federal field commander. In both the Vicksburg campaign and the battles at Chattanooga, Grant had shown not only tenacity and strength of will, but also a keen ability to analyze the situation and determine what would be necessary in order to achieve victory. Grant's success would lead to his elevation in the spring of 1864 
to General-in-Chief of all the Federal Armies and his promotion to Lieutenant General. But on the Confederate side, in the aftermath of his defeat at Chattanooga, it was obvious Braxton Bragg had to go. It was clear Bragg had lost whatever shred of support within the Army he may have still enjoyed after Chickamauga. Now, as his generals grumbled, Bragg started to lash out at them. Everyone was a potential scapegoat for the disaster that had befallen the Army at Chattanooga. While complaining directly to Jefferson Davis about his lieutenants, Bragg, on November 29th, wrote to Samuel Cooper, the adjutant general of the Confederate armies, and offered his resignation, saying, I deem it due to the cause and to myself to ask for relief from command and an investigation into the causes of defeat. Well, Bragg no doubt expected his offer to resign wouldn't be accepted, and that he'd once again be sustained in command. But two days later, Cooper replied, and said that Jefferson Davis had accepted Bragg's offer. To fill Bragg's place, at least for the time being, Davis chose William Hardee, who, after Bragg's departure, would be the senior general present with the Army. However, Hardee didn't want the job. The 48-year-old widower was looking forward to his upcoming wedding in Mobile, Alabama, that winter and was more interested in being able to spend time with his new wife than commanding the troubled army of Tennessee. As he and others had done before, Hardee now urged Jefferson Davis instead to give command of the army to Joseph E. Johnston. As you guys will no doubt recall, Jefferson Davis and Joe Johnston had a, um, strained relationship and Johnston had already, earlier in the year, managed to sidestep being placed in command of the Army of Tennessee. But now, with Bragg out and Hardee not wanting the job, Johnston couldn't ignore the call of duty, and at the end of December, he'll be appointed to the top command spot. We got a bit ahead of ourselves there, talking about Ulysses S. Grant's future as General-in-Chief and Joe Johnston's appointment to command the Army of Tennessee, but if we dial it back to the immediate aftermath of the federal victory at Chattanooga, we'd find that Grant couldn't afford to pursue Bragg as he would have liked. Instead, he had to bear in mind Lincoln and Halleck's constant admonitions to relieve Burnside up at Knoxville. Claiborne's successful defensive stand at Ringgold Gap led Grant to realize that further pursuit of the defeated Confederates wouldn't yield positive results unless he continued to hound them far longer than he dared. So he called off the operation and turned his attention to getting a relief column on its way to Knoxville. With regard to breaking off his pursuit of Bragg, Grant would report, quote, Had it not been for the imperative necessity of relieving Burnside, I would have pursued the broken and demoralized retreating enemy. But what was it about Knoxville and East Tennessee that made what was happening there so important Grant had to break off his pursuit of Bragg to attend to it? 
Well, ever since the start of the Civil War, federal authorities in Washington had felt an urgent need to send troops to East Tennessee. They were motivated both by political and military concerns, since the mountainous eastern portion of the volunteer state was, for the most part, populated by people who remained loyal to the Union. In February 1861, when Tennesseans voted on a proposition to hold a secession convention, the state's central and western regions were moderately supportive of the convention, but the measure ended up failing due to the votes of the small farmers of East Tennessee, who came out five to one against it. You see, western Tennessee had excellent soil for cotton production, and central, or middle Tennessee, had abundant acreage suitable for cotton, corn, and livestock. So slave ownership in those two regions was high compared to East Tennessee. In the rocky, mountainous eastern portion of the state, small farms were the rule, and there was little need for slaves. The residents of East Tennessee resented that political and economic power in the state rested almost exclusively in the hands of the so-called aristocracy, that is, the men who owned large numbers of slaves in western and middle Tennessee. Although Tennessee's first flirtation with secession had failed, by June 1861, support for disunion in the western and middle parts of the volunteer state had reached the point that Tennessee finally sided with the Confederacy, despite the fact that vast majority of East Tennesseans still opposed secession. For the first two years of the war, the Unionists in East Tennessee suffered under severe repression, brought on by what was a civil war within the Civil War. In fact, one local Confederate put it just that way in a November 1861 letter to Jefferson Davis. Civil war has broken out in East Tennessee, he wrote, adding, Union supporters look confidently for the reestablishment of the federal authority in the South with as much confidence as the Jews look for the coming of the Messiah. To the Unionists in East Tennessee, the Confederates were an occupying army that confiscated crops and livestock, conscripted men for military service, and imprisoned people for voicing pro-Union sentiment. In response, many Unionists fled or were driven from the state. Others turned to secret meetings and sabotage. They collected arms to support an anticipated major federal thrust into the region, burned railroad bridges, and otherwise actively worked to make things difficult for the Confederate authorities in the region, all of which only led to further repression. Stories of jailings and hangings in the region were widely reported across the North, and in the eyes of the Lincoln administration, the mountain loyalists of East Tennessee became martyrs to the Union cause. As a result, for the first two years of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln made the liberation of East Tennessee a major military and political objective. Hey 
Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As y'all will no doubt recall, after the crushing federal defeat at the Battle of Fredericksburg in December 1862 and after the fiasco of the Mud March the following month, Abraham Lincoln relieved Ambrose Burnside from command of the Army of the Potomac. However, Lincoln was impressed with the fact Burnside took full responsibility for the debacle at Fredericksburg. And so, rather than sending Burnside home to sit on his hands, Lincoln appointed him to head the Department of the Ohio, which encompassed the states of Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, and most of Kentucky. Burnside took up his new duties in mid-March 1863 and spent the next several months securing the key border state of Kentucky from Confederate guerrillas, cracking down on seditious civilians who resided north of the Ohio River and putting together a field force for the long-awaited invasion of East Tennessee. Burnside's field command totaled about 31,000 men and was organized into two corps, three infantry divisions comprising his old command, the 9th Corps, plus two divisions of the 23rd Corps, and a cavalry corps of two divisions. At the end of May 1863, Burnside prepared to cross his army over the Cumberland River into East Tennessee to guard the left flank of William Rosecrans' Army of the Cumberland when Old Rosie finally started the maneuvering that would turn into the Tullahoma Campaign and take him to the gates of Chattanooga. However, before Burnside started his movement, General-in-Chief Henry Halleck directed him to send 8,000 of his men to Mississippi to aid Ulysses S. Grant's effort to capture Vicksburg. In response to those orders, Burnside sent Grant two divisions of the Ninth Corps, totaling about 8,600 men. With most of his Ninth Corps veterans gone, Burnside was hard-pressed to field enough troops to defend Kentucky, let alone mount a serious incursion into East Tennessee. 
In late July, with Rosecrans Tullahoma campaign having successfully wrested control of Middle Tennessee from the Confederates, Halleck's badgering of Burnside to launch his invasion of East Tennessee reached a crescendo, even though most of the Ninth Corps was still with Grant out in Mississippi. Burnside responded that he thought he could scrape together a force for the expedition, but that it would weaken the defense of the Bluegrass State and make his line of communication and supply down to East Tennessee vulnerable. However, Halleck was unmoved by Burnside's arguments and made it clear he was expected to make an immediate advance to Knoxville. On August 16th, Burnside set out. His force consisted primarily of the 23rd Corps, since the missing 9th Corps troops wouldn't return until October. The Federals advanced toward the Tennessee River in five columns, spread over a distance of 100 miles. The columns marched over awful, rugged mountain roads, and Burnside didn't have enough wagons to carry sufficient food or forage over a picked-over landscape destitute of resources. So the soldiers were put on half rations immediately after the advance commenced. The columns came together as they neared the Tennessee River at Kingston on September 2nd. The day before, Federal cavalry had occupied Knoxville with scarcely a shot being fired. Burnside intended to use Knoxville as a base of operations from which his force would control East Tennessee, but his resolve was soon shaken by reports that reinforcements from Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia had boarded trains bound for points unknown. As you guys know, the reports, of course, were true, but those troops from the Army of Northern Virginia weren't headed for East Tennessee to kick Burnside out of Knoxville. No, they were Longstreet and his men going to reinforce Braxton Bragg, and most of them arrived just in time to take part in the Battle of Chickamauga. As Burnside fretted about whether he'd be able to hold on to Knoxville and protect his precarious 200-mile-long supply line back to Kentucky with only 20,000 men, he started to receive messages from Halleck in Washington saying that the Confederate troops from Virginia were actually headed to reinforce Bragg's army down outside Chattanooga. In light of this news, Halleck instructed Burnside to send as many men as he could spare to Rosecrans before Bragg attacked him. Burnside dutifully dispatched two divisions of infantry and some cavalry, representing about half his combat strength. However, those troops were blocked from reaching Chattanooga by the enemy, and so ultimately Rosecrans was on his own at the Battle of Chickamauga. We've previously touched upon what was going on over on the Confederate side regarding Burnside's occupation of Knoxville, but just to recap, well, after his victory at Chickamauga in September, rather than attempt to carry the federal position at Chattanooga by storm, Braxton Bragg decided to settle into a sort of quasi-siege of the place, in the hopes of starving the Yankees into either surrendering or retreating. Bragg, of course, didn't want Burnside to come down to the relief of Chattanooga, so on October 17th, he dispatched additional troops, 
a division, to help keep Burnside from sending any help to the Federals who were bottled up at Chattanooga. A week later, Bragg added another division, along with Joseph Wheeler's Cavalry Corps. So, by the end of October, Bragg had a substantial force assigned to the task of preventing Burnside from sending aid to the Yankees holding Chattanooga. That force wasn't strong enough to actually retake Knoxville, but then Bragg saw an opportunity to kill two birds with one stone, so to speak, by ridding himself of James Longstreet and, hopefully, ejecting Burnside from Knoxville. We've already talked quite a bit about how, in the immediate aftermath of the Battle of Chickamauga, Longstreet quickly soured on Bragg when Longstreet gave Bragg his thoughts about what should be done to follow up that victory, and Bragg didn't take Old Pete's advice. Longstreet then threw in his lot with the anti-Bragg clique of officers in the Army of Tennessee. After Jefferson Davis's visit to the Army, when the Confederate president sustained Bragg in command, Bragg was able to settle accounts with quite a few of those malcontents, but getting rid of Longstreet wasn't so easy, given Old Pete's political connections and his excellent reputation as one of Robert E. Lee's top lieutenants. And so, there in the Confederate lines outside Chattanooga, Bragg and Longstreet settled into an unhappy standoff, with Longstreet having failed to get rid of Bragg and Bragg unable to get rid of Longstreet. Both generals did their best to simply ignore one another. But after the Federals successfully opened their cracker line, due in no small part to Longstreet's failure to guard Lookout Valley and his mishandling of what turned into the Battle of Wahatchee, Braxton Bragg had had enough. Longstreet had to go. At the end of October, Jefferson Davis suggested Bragg could perhaps order Longstreet to capture Knoxville. The loss of Old Pete and his two divisions would mean a not insignificant reduction in Bragg's total manpower at Chattanooga, but to partly make up for that loss, Davis said that he'd have William Hardy bring two brigades with him from Mississippi when Hardy returned to the Army. Well, Hardy was returning to the army to replace Leonidas Polk, since the bishop general had been one of Bragg's fiercest critics, and Bragg had sacked him for failure to follow orders at the Battle of Chickamauga. At any rate, ridding himself of Longstreet would be a great relief to Braxton Bragg, but at the same time, he was very aware that Ulysses S. Grant was almost certainly very nearly ready to launch the expected major federal attack by which Grant hoped to break the deadlock at Chattanooga. However, one way to derail Grant's plans would be to strike Burnside at Knoxville and regain East Tennessee for the Confederacy. So here was Bragg's opportunity to kill two birds with one stone. He could be rid of Longstreet by sending Old Pete off to strike Burnside, And when Longstreet hopefully scored a major victory and took Knoxville, it would throw a wrench in Grant's plans at Chattanooga. And so, as we said previously on the podcast, on November 4th, Bragg issued the orders sending Longstreet and his two divisions off to attack Burnside. 
And that's where we'll leave things for now. We really just wanted to use this show to set the stage for what we'll be talking about in the next couple of episodes, which is what happened there in East Tennessee when Longstreet set out to eject Ambrose Burnside from Knoxville. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Longstreet, The Confederate General Who Defied the South by Elizabeth Barron. This new book is actually still a couple of weeks away from being released. But a few months ago, we received an advanced copy from Simon & Schuster, and we thought this episode would be a good time to recommend it. So you can pre-order it now, or just wait a couple of weeks until it's out and give yourself an early Christmas present. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We wanted to remind you that the members of the Strawfoot Brigade over on Patreon will continue to get the new episodes of the podcast ad-free. So, besides the members' episodes each month, that's one benefit of signing up to support the podcast in that way. Just like Craig, Denzel M., Stephen K., and David R. did this past week. Thanks, guys. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you'll join us again next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.